probably where we are doing a, uh, a short series through the first uh, eight to ten books of the Bible. I haven't decided how far we're going to go. We'll see. Uh, but um, we have done four books so far, and today we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy. First thing I'd like to point out is how to spell Deuteronomy. I've been misspelling Deuteronomy my entire life. I finally learned. Uh, the hard part is it starts with D-E, okay? D-E-U-T-E-R-O-N-O-M-Y. If you want to wow your friends with your immense amount of biblical knowledge, uh, the title for Deuteronomy comes from a Greek word, uh, Deuteronomos, which means second law. And it, uh, it got that uh, name because this is actually the second time that Moses gives the law to the people of Israel. We've seen the law given in uh, the books of Exodus and Leviticus, but this is the second time the whole law is given to uh, Israel. Um, reading this book uh, is very easy in some ways and very difficult in others. It's easy because it is written much more like uh, a New Testament epistle than anything else we find in the Old Testament. It's very logical, very reasonable, very easy to understand what Moses is getting at. Uh, it is hard because... Um, there are lots of laws here that don't make sense to our 21st century ears, and we'll, we'll discuss that uh, later on in the lesson. Uh, a couple things about the context of Deuteronomy. Uh, the context of the book, this book is really important because throughout the book, uh, Moses, who is speaking in this book, is constantly referencing everything that's happened so far. He's constantly referencing the promises of God made in Genesis to give the descendants of Abraham this, this promised land. Uh, he's constantly referencing the events of the Exodus, how God saved and delivered his people, how they immediately disobeyed him. Uh, constantly referencing the, everything we learned last week about the book of Numbers, how there was this one particular hard-hearted generation that was so disobedient, uh, God passed them over. Um, so uh, that's the context of the book. Here is the structure. Uh, we've talked a little bit about, as we've been reading through these Old Testament books, how looking for repeated words and phrases can be very helpful to understand the book. Uh, Deuteronomy is actually structured around uh, three phrases that sound very similar. The book opens in chapter 1 with, these are the words Moses spoke. And actually, uh, what follows is 11 chapters of Moses' personal charge to Israel to keep the covenant. Next, we see, again, very similar structure. These are the statutes and rules and what follows are all of the commandments, statutes, and rules. These are just words for commandments uh, that are laid out in the covenant. Uh, final section of Deuteronomy starts with these are, again, these are the words of the covenant. And these last five chapters, maybe the most important in the book, just give some reflections about what's going to happen with this covenant God has made with Israel. So that's kind of the layout. Uh, we'll pray. I'm not going to read a passage this morning because we'll be referencing lots of passages in our lesson. Uh, but let's ask the Lord to... Just help us understand and hear from this, this book, and we'll, uh, we'll dive in. Lord, uh, thank you for your law. Thank you that the scriptures tell us in many places that your law gives us wisdom. Um, it revives our souls. It brings joy to our hearts. And so we just pray for your help this morning to receive this book, uh, not just as rules and commandments, but as life, and as joy as we uh, walk with you. Spirit, please come. Uh, encourage us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, survey the room. Who here has seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Show of hands. All right, good. Who here has read all the books? All right, all right. All right, who here thinks that the Lord of the Rings is really stupid and is frustrated that I keep referencing? Okay, great. I just... 
I just sized up everyone's level of sanctification. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. Um, well, I, uh, I have just finished reading the three Lord of the Rings books for the second time. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the movies, but I found that reading the books is a lot richer. And uh, one of the best examples of this for me is the main character, Frodo. Even if you uh, hate the Lord of the Rings, you probably know who Frodo is. Um, but in the movies, uh, you get this sense that Frodo is this pathetic character. Like, there are, there are even times in the movies where he'll just, like, fall down, you know, like, for no reason. Um, he's just this weak guy. There was this, uh, you can actually Google Frodo memes on the Internet. It's really, the Internet can get really deep sometimes, guys. But anyways, uh, there's this picture of three men pushing a truck. And two men are holding the tailgate and actually pushing the truck. And one person is in the truck bed trying to push the cab, and uh, which, you know, is not helping. And uh, they label the guy pushing the cab Frodo. Like, he's just useless. Um, and uh, what's really interesting, though, is when you read the books, he's, he's portrayed very differently. Um, he's actually this uh, epic hero. He's um, charged in the first book to either destroy the ring, which if you're not a Lord of the Rings person, it's just this precious, very dangerous treasure. Uh, or to die trying. And through the books, you just see that he has this do or die, whatever it costs kind of attitude towards his quest. I just consider this, uh, I'll read a little scene from the end of the two towers. Frodo and his buddy Sam are about halfway there and stuff's starting to get rough. And Sam asks a very obvious question. What are we going to do about food for the return journey home? And here's what uh, Frodo says. I don't know how long we shall take to, to finish. Uh, but Samwise, my dear hobbit, my dearest hobbit, friend of friends, I do not think we need to give thought to what comes after that. To do the job, as you put it. What hope is there that we ever shall? And if we do, who knows what will come of that? If the ring goes into the fire and we are there, I ask you, Sam, are we ever likely to need bread again? I think not. If we can nurse our limbs to bring us to Mount Doom, that is all we can do. So he gets it. There's almost no chance they are going to do this. It's an impossible mission. Second, if they do it, they will certainly die. And yet still, they go on. He continues. Um, he's going to keep his promise uh, to try or to die. And uh, if we could summarize the message of Deuteronomy in three words, it would be keep the covenant. Um, that is really the, the message of this book. Everything in this book, all the details, all the laws, all the, all the stories told in it are, are designed to aim to this one thing. Keep God's covenant. Keep the covenant he's made with you. Uh, if you, you don't know what a covenant is, uh, a covenant is a, a relationship, uh, an official relationship based upon promises. So the best example we have of this in our day is marriage. Um, uh, mar marriage is a relationship based on oaths, on solemn oaths you make to each other. And in the book so far, God has made one of these covenants with Israel. And Deuteronomy is primarily about Israel's part in this covenant. Uh, go to Deuteronomy 4. I just want to I I give you guys a taste of how the book feels. Um, over and over again, the tone of the book is urgent and, uh, and commanding and, and demanding that we continue to listen and think. Just notice uh, all the words here. Uh, in this one little chapter, really, and we'll see it in the whole book, um, of keeping or remembering or 
being careful as you forget. Look at verse 1, all right? And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules I'm teaching you, and do them that you may live. Look at verse 6. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding inside of the peoples. Look at verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from you all the days of your life. Look at the end of verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Um, verse 23. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. This goes on, on and on through the book, over and over and over again. And this, this people is called to take care, to be diligent, to keep, to do what God says, to not forget. Even if there's no way they're actually going to do it, even if it might kill them, they are to keep God's covenant. And so in this book that's so centered on keeping God's covenant, we're going to see three things that we'll walk through today, um, kind of jumping around the book. And the first is uh, why we keep God's covenant, why we should. Second, how we keep God's covenant. And third, we'll see what God does when we break his covenant. All right, and uh, just as we walk through the book, I, I want you to keep one thing in mind, all right? This was a covenant made with the Old Testament nation of Israel. Uh, this is the Old Covenant. Uh, believers in Jesus are under what's called the New Covenant. We'll see that here at the end of the book. Um, but what, what I want you to think about is, even though you're not way back then in the covenant, you are still in covenant with God. And the principles we're going to see in this book still apply to you and to how you are to walk with Jesus if you know him. All right, so let's dive in. First, first thing we see is why we keep covenant with God. This book is full of so many reasons. I will highlight four. Uh, first reason, we keep God's covenant because he has saved us. If you'd like to look at uh, chapter 6 with me, you may. Uh, but chapter 6, verse 12, God says, Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord God you shall fear. And a few verses later in chapter 6, verse 21, there's a situation. Uh, a child is asking you why you're keeping covenant with God. It's kind of like my little daughter asking me why I read my Bible or why we're going to church. And Moses gives the answer in verse 21. Here's why you keep God's covenant. We were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt, before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us land. And so a big idea here for us as people under a different covenant than these people uh, is this. Why should you, if you're under grace, right, why should you strive with all of your heart to obey God's commandments? Why rearrange your life and your priorities around Jesus? Why do difficult things for Jesus? And the answer here is that he has saved you. He's rescued you. Um, he has delivered you, not from uh, just physical slavery in a foreign land. He's delivered you from spiritual slavery. The book of Ephesians says that uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were enslaved following the prince of the power of the air, the, the evil one. And, and when we were there, that, that Christ 
God, through Christ, reached down with a mighty arm and rescued us. Somebody saves your life, grateful. The idea here is God has saved your soul. He's rescued you. If that was the only reason in this book to keep his commandments, it would be enough. There's more. Uh, So first, we keep God's uh, covenant because he saved us. Second, we keep it because he's revealed himself to us. Uh, Back to chapter 4, Deuteronomy 4, verse 10. Moses talks about the appearance of God on Mount Sinai, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me so that I may let them hear my words. Uh, go, Go to verse 11. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. In other words, you are the only people in the world You have seen God. You've seen a mountain on fire. You've seen him. You've heard his voice. So keep his words. And you guys, again, you may not be Israelites who actually saw a mountain on fire, but if you know Jesus, you've experienced salvation, surely you can say that Jesus has revealed himself to you. just, Just think about this for a second. There are billions of people in the world, all of them, rebellious against God, resistant to him. You were one of them. And God, for no other reason than that he loves to love, chose you, revealed himself to you, has drawn you to himself. And he hasn't just done that to save you. He's shown you his beauty and his glory and his majesty. So keep his rules. We keep God's covenant because he saved us, because he's revealed himself. And third, because he has taught and is teaching us like sons. Go to Deuteronomy 8. Uh, This is a wonderful passage. I would encourage you, actually, uh, if you are in a difficult season and uh, you're you're pretty sure that this difficult season is not a result of you making bad decisions or or in sin or whatever, um, I think Deuteronomy 8 would be really refreshing to you. I'd encourage you to go home and chew on it. But in Deuteronomy 8, uh, Moses is interpreting uh, what happened in the wilderness. So if you were here last week, Uh, You remember that uh, there was a generation of people who disobeyed God, and they were sentenced to die in the wilderness um, for their own sin. However, all these people had children who were not rebellious and stubborn, but they were sentenced to live in the wilderness. So uh, imagine this. Your mom and dad screw up, and you have to go on a 40-year camping trip with them. Right? That's your childhood. And you're like, you don't get to start life until you're 40 and you're camping on the ground, okay? And uh, Moses in, uh, in Deuteronomy 8 is interpreting why God would allow that. And he says, God's, what God's doing there is he's, he's being a father to you and training you. We'll just see. Look at verse 2. You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Go to verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Why do fathers discipline their sons? Because they love them. They want to train them to have a life that's a blessing. If you had a good dad, most likely they they loved you, but they disciplined you. They trained you. They put boundaries in your life. They gave you difficulties to teach you. 
you didn't have a good dad, just know that God, like a father, is a good father. He does this. But, but here's what God is doing currently in your life in the difficulties. He's preparing you for blessing. He's training you. He's forming your character. In fact, he's giving you uh, particular difficulties and sufferings to teach you particular lessons. That you might be humble before him. That you might know him. That you might be blessed. So think about this. God has he's rescued you. He's revealed himself to you. And now, in your life, he is currently working in your circumstances and weaving them together for your good. So keep his covenant. Final reason, we won't spend too much time here. Deuteronomy actually does spend a good bit of time here. Uh, Keep God's covenant because of the blessings and curses. Uh, Deuteronomy, throughout this book, uh, it talks about obedience in terms of circumstantial blessing. When When Israel obeyed God, it would go well with them. And when they disobeyed him, it would go horribly wrong with them. Um, That is probably the aspect of this book that's most difficult to connect to our lives today. The blessings and curses of following Jesus or not following him are a little bit different. But notice, uh, even here, uh, God takes one of our chief motivations, right? Uh, To have a good life. To have a life that ends well and goes well. And he says, listen, the only way you're going to have that is in obedience and covenant keeping. All right, so I want you to think back to childhood. All right, uh, probably when you were a middle schooler or high schooler, um, and uh, maybe your parents most likely, but uh, maybe a coach or teacher said, do this, like go, you know, whatever. And as any, you know, curious slash rebellious child, you say, why? All right, what's their response? Because I said so, right? Great parenting right there, you know? No, Um, well, listen, that is not, uh, that is not the way that God parents us. That's not the way, in fact, he even calls us to obedience. The king of the universe who has the right to tell you, just do it because I say so, he actually gives you thousands of reasons to obey him. What's happened in the past? Present blessing for your life, future blessing for your life. God's beauty, having his blessing. Yesterday, so my daughter is three and a half, and she is really bad at cleaning her room. We're trying to make her, though, because we want to train her, right? You know? Um, but there'll be times where I'll be like, all right, Nora, clean your room. And she'll just sit on the floor and go, I can't, you know, which is not true. She's fully capable of, all right? Uh, but yesterday, but we've just introduced bubble gum into Nora's life. And now she's just got this new obsession with gum. She finally learned not to swallow it, you know, anyways. Um, <laughs> but the other day, the other day, we decided, um, we decided um, that we would give her gum as a reward for doing her chores. And so we just said, uh, Nora, if you'd like some gum, why don't you knock out cleaning your room? And without a complaint, or a word of rebellion. She just quietly walks up the stairs, spends 10 minutes cleaning her room. It's like spotless, I mean, for a kid, right? And then comes back down, and she, and she has her gum. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? <laughs> but listen, listen, that is a perfect example of human motivation. I tell you, uh, do this because I say so. You definitely don't do it. I say, do this or I'll punish you. You might do it, but you'll hate me. I say, do this because I love you, and I'm going to reward you. And you're, you're going for it. Listen, God knows that about you. And that's what he says in the scriptures, man. He says, man, keep covenant with Jesus. Obey him. Take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. Not just because that's what good people do, but because it's going to bless your life. Because God's rescued you. Because he has a future for you. Um, But there is one motivation that's not in Deuteronomy that I want to be real clear about. 
Um, throughout this book, there is nothing that says, keep God's covenant because then he will love you. Or keep God's covenant because then you'll be righteous before him and earn his favor. Um, right smack dab in the middle of the most law and obedience-centered book in the whole Bible, we see grace-based obedience. God's people are called to obey him because he's already saved them, because he's already rescued them, because he's already poured his love out on them in Christ. And so if you don't know Jesus or you haven't experienced his grace um, and you come to the Bible and you say, you know what, these are some good moral guidelines for my life and I'm going to I'm going to try my best. Listen, that is not going to benefit you. In fact, it will probably damn you. And I mean that in the sense of the word where it will sentence you to hell. Taking God's law and using it as a way to be righteous before him is abusing it. It's misusing it. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, obey so God will love you. In fact, it always says continually, the law shows you your need for Jesus. And, and, and only when you've been reconciled to God by faith in him can you obey him. So right here in Deuteronomy, you obey and you love out of an overflow of God rescuing you and saving you. Don't get it mixed up. It's real tempting to get it mixed up. Even if you're a Christian, even if you know Jesus, it's real tempting to say, God loves me today because I'm doing the right thing. Or, or God will show me favor if I do X, Y, and Z. Our obedience to Jesus is always a response to his grace and an anticipation for all the good he promises us. It's never to be right before him. But again, if you have been rescued by Jesus, if you're, if you're resting upon him to save you, again, these truths give you motivation to change when, you, when everything else in your life is telling you not to. There are habits we all have that are ungodly. There are patterns of our lives. There are situations we have when all we're tempted to do is disobey. And Deuteronomy gives us many, many motivations. Listen, uh, maybe you've got a relationship that's really difficult. Somebody's really wounded you. Um, it's very difficult to forgive. It might even be difficult to be in Christian community with them. Deuteronomy says, listen, like, just because community is fun is not your motivation here. That's not enough for you. Um, God has rescued you. He's forgiven your sins. He's delivered you. And so you can now go and do likewise. There, there's, there's, God wants you to have real ballast, stabi stability in your life, motivations for obedience that go beyond this works for me in the moment. This feels good. So keep God's covenant through grace. So first we've seen why. Why we should keep God's covenant. He's rescued us. He's revealed himself to us. He's fathering us because of all the blessings and curses. Now it also shows us how to keep covenant with God. Look at Deuteronomy 6. Probably the most famous passage in this book because it was quoted several times by Jesus. Uh, this gets at the very heart of the law. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Here is how you keep covenant with God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Um, Old Testament believers in Jesus' day rightly uh, said this was the center of the Old Testament law. Jesus quoted it and validated it in Matthew 22. Uh, but there's two, uh, two important things to bring out about this. Um, we keep God's covenant primarily through a love for God. Just notice that. Uh, it's not through a moral lifestyle. 
or having the right political views or being obedient typically, right? It's a love, an actual love for God. So if you're, uh, if you're checking all your Christian boxes off, but you're bored with God himself, if he's, not, uh, if he's not something that excites you, if time with him is not something that's valuable to you, right? You are breaking the covenant. Again, there's repentance there and forgiveness, right? But just know that. The heart of morality for a Christian is a love for God. Now, uh, the second thing here is we've got to say that love in the Bible uh, is not necessarily love as we conceive of it in a Western culture. So typically, the way we naturally think of love is an emotional and affections-based response to something that is beautiful and worthy. All right, if that, that was a clunky definition, okay, someone walks in, ooh, okay, that, that's, that's, that's more like how to translate. But, but we, we always see love as an emotional response to something that's already beautiful. And actually, that's, that's a part of it. We actually get a part of it right. Um, we do love God like that. We should see his beauty and respond to it. Uh, but there's more. Uh, consider this example. Uh, Matt Chandler is a, a fairly uh, famous and wonderful pastor uh, here in America. Uh, he marries a godly woman. Uh, I don't know if this is their story, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they were young. They fell in love with each other. She was probably impressed by his character and godliness and thought he was hot. Okay? Um, good. Nothing wrong with that. All right? A few years into their marriage, um, he gets brain cancer. Um, and he tells this story. Now, the hot, godly, 20-something-year-old that his spouse married is puking his brains out, bald, has lost all his muscle tone, can't work, and is essentially useless to her. And he just talks about how she just devoted herself to now bearing the extra load of their family and to caring for him and to loving him. And our natural response to that is that's the real thing. That's love. We may not be able to articulate it, but we understand that love is certainly much more than emotional response to something beautiful. In fact, love is most revealed when we can devote ourselves to someone. Now, of course, uh, we don't take care of God. He never becomes helpless or weak, right? Uh, but still, uh, notice the main thing biblical love requires, m- equal to or maybe more than the emotions, is this all-of-life devotion, this faithfulness, this centeredness on action, um, it includes affection, it includes emotion, but it's centered upon action and devotion. All right, so that's the first way to keep covenant with God. Devote yourself wholeheartedly to loving him. Second, uh, you keep God's covenant uh, by loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, Deuteronomy does not say that. Um, Jesus actually summarizes Deuteronomy with that. But uh, there's a system of laws here. Uh, chapters 12 through 28 are the primary requirements of the covenant Israel would make, all the things that this nation would do. And uh, if you look carefully at Deuteronomy 12 to 28, uh, you will see that these are basically commanding and creating a society that's filled, first, with love for God, but second, with love for neighbor. There's also all sorts of ways this works out. Uh, you see justice to the weakest of society. You see uh, mercy towards the poor. You see loving your enemies. You see all sorts of things here. Um, But I want to address a critical question. Um, When I say critical, I mean uh, people who raise objections uh, to the Bible. Um, And this is kind of a difficult one for all of us. But uh, the major objection to the book of Deuteronomy is that some of these laws seem very unjust to us, um, particularly to us in our 
culture. Let me just let me just list a few things that are particularly horrifying in Deuteronomy. All right, uh, there are laws that talk about how you are to go about marrying a female foreign captive who's been taken as plunder in war. All right, uh, there is a passage about executing a rebellious son. There's a passage where a man who is caught uh, raping a woman must marry her. That sounds crazy. There are lots of laws that describe and prescribe the way slavery would work in, in, in Israel. And so many people um, see these laws and say, man, the Bible's unjust. People use it to justify slavery. This is a terrible book. We should reject this. And I want to address, um, address that question for about five or six minutes. It's a big one, so I just want to spend some time in it, okay? Uh, so here's the first thing. Here's, here's the thing I want you to, to, to get in your heads, all right? Uh, we, we cannot attempt to understand the laws of Deuteronomy functioning in a 21st century society. We can't, try, we can't try to make Deuteronomy the American legal code. That's impossible. That wasn't its intent. We have to go back into the three, four, five thousand years ago ancient Near East, talk about life in the ancient Near East, talk about legal codes that were comparable to Deuteronomy, and then evaluate it. So uh, I'll just uh, give you all another resource. I've been loving uh, the Bible Project as I've studied these books. It gives you six to eight minute summaries of whole books of the Bible, very useful. Uh, but they go into this a good bit, and it's very helpful. Uh, but let's, uh, one thing that might be helpful for us, and I never do this because it, people get lost, but here's, here's something. We're going to talk about Hammurabi's code for a minute. It was a, uh, it was a uh, legal system of Babylon that was contemporary to Deuteronomy. All right, here are a couple of laws from Hammurabi's code, okay? If a wife is accused of adultery and there's no evidence, no evidence, all right, she should throw her, or she must throw herself into the river and drown for the honor of her husband. Uh, on the contrary, men were allowed to have openly adulterous relationships with whomever they pleased. All right, Deuteronomy, in contrast, uh, prescribes punishment for the men who commit adultery and does not allow murder for a woman accused of adultery. Uh, in Hammurabi's code and many codes in the ancient Near East, there was literally nothing about caring for the poor or showing justice to them. Deuteronomy is full. Um, throughout the ancient Near East, uh, slaves were treated horrifically. Um, and Deuteronomy calls primarily for people to treat slaves justly. A couple of highlights here. Uh, it even provides for the protection of runaway slaves and commands the release of slaves after a certain period of time. So uh, if you go back, I was doing a Baptist history class, and of course, when you talk about Baptist history, you have to talk about slavery because the Southern Baptist Convention was started uh, to allow missionaries to have slaves. Un unhelpful fact about our denomination. We've repented, okay? Um, but uh, they had us examine some actual historical evidence, and um, there were many uh, Christians who noticed the provisions uh, for slavery in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy was used uh, by proponents of slavery to say, well, it's okay, because the Bible says it's okay. And uh, what they notice here is if the American, if Americans in the 1800s, if they followed any of the laws in Deuteronomy about slavery, the system of slavery would have ended in a generation because you release slaves every few years and you treat them justly and you refuse to let their masters hunt them down. So just notice here, all right, all the objections we have here, they're answerable, right? 
and, and, and the big thing is, here's the big thing, though. I, I, uh, I don't want to lose you guys, all right? Here's the big thing. Um, in the particular historical and cultural context of the ancient Near East, all right, the, the laws of Deuteronomy would have put Israel at the most moral, most just, most compassionate nation in the whole world. Other nations would have been able to look at Israel functioning in this cultural and historical age, and they would have seen a picture of God's mercy and compassion and justice. That was the idea. You compare them, not to the American Constitution, right, which came from primarily Christian principles later on in salvation history, you, but if you compare them to contemporary ways of life, this, this looks spotless. It looks clean. It looks just. All right. Um, New Testament authors uh, do this a little bit. Uh, there's a great example. If you're curious on how I take weird laws from Deuteronomy and apply them to my life, uh, just write this down. I'm not going to go here, but in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul quotes this completely random verse out of Deuteronomy. You shall not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. Anyone, anyone want to guess what his, his application was? Pay your pastor. That was how he applied that verse. And so the idea is that he's taking this law, he's thinking about a principle that we can bring into the modern day, and he's applying it. So I, if, if, you're, if you're interested in this, uh, it might be helpful to you. Read Deuteronomy like this. Don't think about, okay, this offends me. Think about what's the principle here? What's the, what's the justice here? How can I live that out and apply that? Okay. I hope that's helpful. We can talk about it later if it wasn't. All right. Uh, but back to application. Uh, just notice all the way back in the fifth book of the Bible, we are very close to the center of New Testament morality, loving God and others. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is the greatest quality of all. 1 John says, let us love one another, for love is from God. Galatians 6 says, the whole law is summed up in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It has always been love for God and others. Uh, leave behind you that objection or that thought that the Old Testament was all justice and the New Testament is all love. It's always been love. Maybe just a different conception of love that we might wake up with. But for you, all right, for you, your life, all right, what does it look like for you to keep covenant with God? It does not primarily look like keeping your morals straight, doing the right things, showing up here, checking your boxes off. It primarily looks like love for God and love for others, an outward devotedness to God's glory and the good of other people. Now, this is, this is great because it's, um, it's simple enough to start today, but complicated enough for the rest of your life. Right? We're all, I think we're all squirming, right? We all love to squirm our way out of obedience to Jesus. We love to rest on how good we're currently doing and maybe how much better we're doing than our friends. But if the standard, right, is if the standard that we're, we're enabled by grace to live out, the standard is you love God with all of your heart and you spend your entire life loving people, we can always grow in that. So what I want to say is just maybe a, something you take into your life, right? Um, leave this room, admit one way you're failing to love God and others and make a step towards obedience in that one way. Start small, start with one thing. So God shows us how to keep covenant with him. We love him, we love others. So uh, we could stop this lesson on Deuteronomy, know some good reasons why to keep covenant with God, know how to. Uh, but if we stopped, um, we would miss life. 
and we would miss grace. And what is amazing about this book is it actually ends with this passage about God providing for covenant breakers. Go to Deuteronomy uh, 29, actually Deuteronomy 30. So Deuteronomy 28 lays out uh, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. These curses are some of the scariest passages outside of the book of Revelation and the whole Bible. Uh, it's really brutal. Um, in Deuteronomy 29, uh, sorry, sorry, the, and the curse, the highlight of the curses, the worst thing that could happen is Israel would be banished from the land. They'd be kicked out. And then in Deuteronomy 30, here's what Moses says. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And when all of these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice with all your heart and soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy upon you. Just notice that in this book that is centered on keeping the covenant, there is a recognition and a realization that these people would not keep the covenant. Moses said it to him. He knew it. He predicted it. Um, in fact, it's, it's almost like Deuteronomy is a really great bandage over a wound that needs surgery, right? It, it, it helps for a time, right? Uh, but there's more that has to happen to these people. Um, and I just want to say, uh, if you have blown it recently, uh, maybe you've acted in a way where someone who might look at you and say, there's no way this person knows Jesus, the book does not excuse your sin, but notice that God has already planned to provide for you in your sin. He already knows. He's already got a plan for this. He loves to help covenant breakers. But notice precisely what he's going to do in chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This image of circumcising someone's heart is the idea is you take this hard outward layer off of your heart so that your heart is soft and obedient. And the idea of this is that God is going to do for these people what they could not do for themselves. He was going to soften them. He was going to draw them. He was going to help them. He was going to enable them to obey him. And, uh, here on Palm Sunday, celebrating Jesus coming victorious as the king of his people, um, we've got to think about how this happens. And we see in, in the New Testament that Jesus lives God's covenant. He dies as a covenant breaker, bearing all the curses of this book. And then he's risen as victorious king. And as victorious king, he sends the spirit, and the spirit softens the hearts of God's people. What's prophesied here in Deuteronomy 30 is fulfilled when Jesus sends the Spirit upon you and he softens you to obey what you'd be hard towards, when he draws you to Christ. So the gospel provides you both with provision for your sin and power over your sin. Maybe uh, instead of walking out of this room and saying, you know, I got something I got to work on, why don't you walk out of here today and just say, Lord, I am so hard-hearted. Soften my heart. 
Give me the spirit. Draw me to you. So as we close, uh, I just wanted to point out you are a lot more like the movie version of Frodo than the book version of Frodo. You make excuses. You faint sometimes for no reason, right? Uh, but the God of Deuteronomy knows that and provides for you in the midst of your sin. He's able to give you power. And I just want to close by reading one of the last passages in Deuteronomy that I think brings all this together. You can come with me if you'd like to. Deuteronomy 33:26. In light of the fact that God's given his people this covenant and that they can't obey it, but that he would provide them uh, with the power and the spirit. Here's what he says. And just uh, this little word, the fifth word, Jeshurun, is a word for Jeru- or word for God's people, okay? All right, verse 26, chapter 33. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy, so Israel lived in safety, and Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and the sword of your triumph. Let's pray. Lord, um, I ask that in the Spirit's power, that we could leave today just saying we are the happiest of people. You've given us your rules. You've given us reasons to obey them. You've given us power to obey them and grace when we don't. And so I just pray you would fill us with life and joy and the power that comes from knowing Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.